When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome back to First Act, a podcast from Koshy's Business Builders. I'm Seth Busby. And I'm Adam Bubb. And on this podcast, we talk to Australia's most innovative movers and shakers in business and life. And it's often inspiring, sometimes funny, but most of all, honest. That's right. Welcome back, Seth. It's good to have you back in the studio after missing you last week. People, culture and organisation are Michelle Fotheringham's bread and butter. For more than a decade, she's been helping businesses, corporations and even the government put together successful teams and find solutions to unique business problems. Well, now she's put all that know-how to good use as the co-founder of WorkLink, an on-demand talent platform that lets business leaders access a pool of peer-recommended individuals to create their dream teams. Now, if you want the big picture on the future of work, Michelle's got plenty of answers, and she joins us to give us the lowdown on people, passion and purpose, and why having a people strategy is so important. Welcome. Hello, lovely to be here. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Michelle, it's so good to have you here with us today. In the, in the future, in the future of work, but also in the present. Uh, now, look, we always start with our first act icebreaker, uh, just a question to get things moving mm-hmm. along. Uh, if it. you could spend a week on a retreat with three famous people in business, entertainment, anything, who would those three people be? Oh, my goodness. That's a fabulous question. Um, I am a little bit obsessed with the story of Netflix and listening to Mark Randolph's um, podcast called That Will Never Work. So I think he would definitely be one because I just get so much out of reading reading his books and listening to his podcast. So I think he would definitely have to be uh, number one. Bit of a Lizzo fan. Um, she can provide the tune, so we'll invite her along as well. And for the third, look, this is like I cannot believe I'm sharing this, but I have a secret shame, and my secret shame is that I am obsessed with the Kardashians, which is very embarrassing. <laughs> like it's, it's not ideal. Now, if you tell me you want you watch any other sort of reality TV, I will look down my nose at you. Farmer wants a wife. I've got no time for that. But I do have a Kardashian obsession. So I think Kim will have to come along. I was just about to ask you which one you were going to choose because, <laughs> because you know, it's like picking your favourite favorite baby, you know, like which, which one, which one? <laughs> I know. Look, it's so embarrassing. And like I said, I'm the first to judge anyone else who watches any other reality TV. But, you know, it's a bit of... Ex- escapism. Um, and yeah, it's, oh, I can't believe I've led with that. I think I've just lost all credibility from the outset, but there you uh, go. No. I like the Kardashians, yes. I've oh, met um, Chloe, actually. I've met Kim. Really? I interviewed her once, actually. Oh, what? Yeah. yeah. What? Just casual okay. flexing here. In Sorry. our past lives. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just <laughs> casual name dropping. It's totally fine. <laughs> 
We You're have uh, at all. entertainment reporter backgrounds. That's so. right. Yeah, Kim doesn't. It is true that she doesn't blink. Uh, that's mm-hmm. one secret I can reveal from having a, a good uh, <laughs> ten-minute conversation with her. That her eye contact is like I've. I don't think I've met someone with eye contact like her. She oh says you. Gosh. She looks you down, but she's. She kind of is. A, she's the master of saying. She says a lot, but doesn't say much. And that was look. This was nearly. This was like. Nine year, nine or ten years ago, you know that was that was at a, a time where she had just been first started dating yeah. Kanye. But look, this first act is not about Kim; it's about you, Michelle. Can it be? <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll have a we'll have a um a set we'll have a special uh, mini episode um adding to that. This yeah, will be yeah, the second the second week in a row where the Kardashians have come up because it did on last really? week's podcast too. Yeah, yeah. Oh. I mean, how can you have a conversation without the Kardashians coming up? That's the question. Well, phenomenal businesswomen. Everything else, regardless, mm-hmm. they're just incredible businesswomen. And mm-hmm. their mum, incredible mm-hmm. businesswoman. Yes. Yeah, quite an amazing story. Anyway, we digress. Yes, we do. Now, <laughs> back to you. It's all about you today. And what I am wanting to know is when did you realise that you had a talent for organising people and helping them to shape their purpose? Oh, look, I guess the story behind Workling and the, the moment in time that got me interested in what this future of work could look like was when I was freelancing myself, taking on a variety of projects in the people and culture space. And I looked around my network and I could see more and more people opting out of in-house traditional employment and wanting to go out on their own. And as I looked around my network, I could see that they were people that I knew were awesome. They were people who were known as high performers and top talent wasn't the average people, wasn't the shit people, it was the great people. Uh, And that got me really curious around the type of people who are opting out of traditional employment. And that's kind of where the Workling journey started. I started doing a heap of research on both sides of the market, both on the talent side, so why people were choosing to work like this, and on the business side. What are the problems that are going on in relation to how we traditionally design work and we resource our organisations and is there a better way that can enable people to do more purpose-led work? When you, when you, when you go back to kind of your, your core purpose and building who you are today, were you always uh, like that kind of get-up-and-go people person and, and that kind of mover and shaker, um, you know, challenging the status quo Oh, I'd probably say no. I went through a startup accelerator program last year and I felt very old, to be honest. You know, <laughs> I've just turned 40 and I've got my first startup. I think so often you hear from entrepreneurs who, you know, at the age of 12, they had their lemonade stands and they're onto their seventh business by the time they were 18. And that's certainly not my story. I have had quite a traditional career path moving through corporate and government organizations. I did start in marketing, but I've spent most of my career in the people and culture space. And, you know, I suppose there's, you know, many different paths to becoming an entrepreneur. And for me, I guess having that deep experience in how we design work, how we create people strategy for our organization has really helped me as I start to step into this role of entrepreneur for the first time in my life and starting to look at what the future of work 
can look like and how I can be a contributor to that. So you've you've spoken just a little bit about your entrepreneurial journey there, but let's take it right back. What was your first job and what do you think you took away from it? My first ever job was, well, my very first job going all the way back was at Target. Ah. Um, But, you know, I like to add that I was in the music section. So if anyone, you know, grew up working in your, you know, retailers like your Kmarts and your Big Ws, you know, being in the music section, you know, that's pretty cool. That that had some, you know, you got a bit of cred there. Um, so that's going way back to my you know, first ever job. I think what I took away from that is, you know, I can't say that I had the best experience, you know, with the leader, you know, when you're a 16-year-old kid and you don't know any better, just the impact that leaders can have, whether it's in a retail context and frontline context or any organisational context, the impact um, that leaders can have on everyone and anyone that they work with. In terms of my first ever grown-up job um, was I worked for Triathlon Victoria um, and I did admin. At the time when I went to university, I studied sports management, which is ridiculous in hindsight because the older I got, the less interest I had in sport. But at the time, I wanted to be the next Jerry Maguire. Um, and show me the money. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It was vibing heavily on, um, Tom Cruise, but I, so yeah, I worked in the sports industry for a number of years, but my first ever role was, um, at triathlon Victoria. And that was in my last year of study. And I was like, I've got to get out there into the, I can't wait to finish this degree before I get out in the real world and start to get some real experience. So my, you know, I, my learning from that was I literally just asked one of my lecturers whether they knew anyone within the industry who might be open to bringing me in to to provide some support or even just gain some work experience. And I think, I guess my learning from that was if you never ask, you never know. So not being afraid to put yourself out there and ask people to make connections for you. Um, so that's probably what I got out of my my first my first ever role. So, Michelle, you've since dubbed yourself a corporate SKP, which I love that term. But <laughs> you were in you were in that world for quite a while. What first drove you to enter those corporate environments? Look, as daggy as it sounds, I was working in sports marketing and the organisation I was working with at the time, I just had this epiphany that, you know, people are what matters. People are the heart of any organisation um, and decided to shift my career from a marketing focus to a people and culture focus or HR at the time. When I reflect on my time in the corporate world, there was, gosh, just I learned so much and got to work with so many amazing people. I think moving from different roles in different organisations helped me just to get the breadth of experience Corporate escapé, I think, is a you know, it's a term that I love too. But I think, you know, on the back of COVID in particular, and you know, the last couple of years that we've had, people are wanting to design their life and their work in a different way. And that's where I'm seeing more of these corporate escapés who don't necessarily want to be owned by an organization. They don't want a traditional job. They're looking at doing work that is project-based and outcome-based that plays to their strengths. 
um, and allows them to to follow their purpose. So there are many fabulous things about working inside an organisation. I think, you know, that ability to learn off others and have that kind of peer learning and peer support to be a part of amazing teams and be real central and core to the operations of the business. But it's not for everyone. And more and more, we're seeing people opting to different work styles. Yeah, you just mentioned the massive shift that we've seen from um, people wanting to be part of that corporate lifestyle and the kind of the rat race where jobs were for life. But now, as you say, like people want to design their jobs for their life rather than work a job and have their job be their life. So what do you think that means for businesses? For businesses, it's about letting go of the idea of talent exclusivity. To date, we have designed our work into jobs. We advertise that job. We talk to people about that job. We choose someone and then we offer them that job. They come and work for us and only us and they're all ours and they don't do anything else. Yeah. There's a real shift around letting go of that diet that idea of exclusivity. Typically, our organisations, and even if you look at our people and culture functions or our talent functions, they're very focused on the employee workforce. So how can we acquire employees, retain employees, and keep them within our organisation? Organisations right now are taking a really binary view to talent. You're either internal talent, you're an employee, Um, and you're a part of this organisation or you're external, you're a supplier or a vendor and you're out there, you're not a part of us. But there's something amazing to be explored in that middle area. It's not an us and a them or an internal or an external. So I think there's a huge opportunity, one, for organisations to start to reimagine what that organisation looks like. So how can we start to define what is core? What are the core capabilities that we can hold within our organisation? And then how do we start to create create these ventures of shared talent that not only help us to flex and augment and create more nimble organisation, but also taps into this talent pool that don't want a job that we can't access by advertising a job. So, and that's a really, that's a that's changing the whole kind of system of how we're designing our organisation. So there's a lot that needs to happen behind that. I think, you know, it starts with organisations really shifting away from that idea of talent exclusivity, but also the fact that all work needs to be delivered in jobs. Not all work needs to be delivered in jobs. We don't need the exact same number of people, the exact same capabilities all of the time. The needs and the work within the organisation isn't static. So how can we start to design work, yes, into some jobs for that core function of an organisation, but then also designing work into projects where you can pull in and out this amazing cohort of freelance and on-demand talent to deliver different outcomes within an organisation. There's so much kind of dismantling of the way that we kind of know and I guess we're, we're sort of saying to you know, to the world of business, you know, there are other ways of looking at things and, you know, our worlds have been kind of tipped upside down over the past couple of years. This is an opportunity and it is an opportunity, not a threat. I'm, I'm sure some see it as a threat, mm-hmm. but it's mm-hmm. an opportunity to reframe how we work, what we want out of work, but it's something that can actually be good for everyone. What do you see becoming even even bigger trends now? 
Mm. Look, we work really closely at Workling with an amazing work futurist called Rihanna Brown. And, you know, one thing that she's really taught me is how do you keep your eye out for those signals of change, whether they're weak signals of change or strong signals of change. Upwork did some research last year that suggested that 20% of people are considering freelance work in the future. There was research that came out a couple of weeks ago that suggests by 2028, there'll be more people working in a gig capacity than in traditional employment models. There's growing number of people who are choosing to work in this way. We surveyed our talent within the Workling community recently and 90% have no intention of returning to traditional employment. So that's a cohort of people who do not want a job. In fact, there's one person in our community who has signed up to a, a jobs platform. He gets job emails in his inbox every Monday morning and that's his reminder to absolutely nail his projects that he's got on the week so we won't ever have to apply for one of those jobs. It's quite an intentional um, uh, intentional decision that people are making. And it's, it's interesting because on the back of COVID, I was working to a bit of a hypothesis that organisations had had to change in both their both their shape and in their in some cases their purpose or the product that they were delivering over the COVID time, that it was proven that organizations need to be more nimble. They need to be able to augment their workforce more. Therefore, there's going to be this moment of realization, this grand epiphany that there is a true place for freelancers in these future work models. The other thing that's really come out of the last couple of years is people wanting purposeful work, people wanting to design their life and their work in a different way, people wanting to play to their strengths. So I think you can start to see some of those trends and some of that narrative. And that really leads more and more towards this idea of freelance and on-demand work and controlling your own destiny. That is, there's so much to unpack here. I'm, I'm loving all of the insights you've got for us so far, Michelle. We'll be back with more from Michelle Fotheringham after this short break. Welcome back, Michelle. Thanks for joining us again. Now, thank you. What I'm interested in is entrepreneurship because I think the pandemic has really instigated a rise in entrepreneurship across Australia. And I'm, I'm wondering what you think are the qualities of a successful entrepreneur? I think it is an obsession with the problems that they're trying to solve and not being so fixed on what the solution might look and feel like, but a continued exploration of what that problem is that they can they can solve. And just a willingness to put themselves out there and try something new. I mean, I'm a, I'm someone who has a people and culture background and I'm creating marketing strategies and product roadmaps and talking to investors, you know, all of this kind of stuff that I've never done before. So I think just a willingness to put yourself out there and be focused on that problem that you're trying to solve. I think that is what is most important. From my experience, I feel like there's a lot of noise in the kind of entrepreneurial or startup kind of ecosystem. I think it's, again, just focusing on that problem 
to solve and how you can add value to your customers and and surrounding yourself with good people who'll help you on that journey. Mm. And what about the difference between being an entrepreneur and and being entrepreneurial? Because, I mean, entrepreneurial mindset is probably something we should all try to cultivate. Absolutely. I think there are so many different ways to apply an entrepreneurial mindset other than being an entrepreneur. There's so much space within larger business, within business generally and government organisations to be able to apply that entrepreneurial mindset, uh, whether it's your own freelance or gig-based work. There's a, I always remember someone saying to me during the pandemic that she was starting up her own kind of side hustle from marketing. She'd been stood down by her organisation that had been dramatically infected, uh, affected through COVID. And she said to me, I won't find myself in this situation again where I'm reliant on one employer. I will always have something else going on now. And I think we're starting to see more of these side hustles and entrepreneurial businesses popping up because people have seen what can happen when you are reliant on this one stream of income. I think the 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 perception of job security will change in the future. For so long we've seen the permanent full-time job as the most secure type of employment. And to a degree that's still true, but there's probably a lot of people that lost their jobs through 2020 and 21 that would probably disagree with that. You have others who have multiple revenue streams, who have this lovely portfolio career where maybe they're doing some consulting work over here. They've got their podcast over here. They're doing some coaching over here. They've got multiple revenue streams. Some of those taps might be turned off, but they still have other things that continue to provide their income. So that idea of income security and entrepreneurship, I think, are, are a little bit intertwined and it, it would be interesting to see what the impact of, of the pandemic has had there. So, Michelle, you mentioned like being a first-time startup founder, like you've come from that world of, you know, going, right, you know, you have job security and you kind of know where your next paycheck is going to come from. How do you think people can make that mental shift to going, right, I'm, um, I'm going to be okay with the fact that I'm going to be hustling a bit more now or... Or is that something that you see with Workling kind of like taking the hustle out of it for the for the average kind of talent that you've, you know, not just average talent, the extraordinary talent that you've got there? <laughs> yeah, look, I'm the first to admit I come from a very privileged situation. My husband has a great job and we have, you know, a level of financial security and I wouldn't want to pretend that it's anything otherwise. Similar could be said for probably a lot of the people within our Workling community. They have had the privilege of having mostly 15 to 20 years amazing experience. They've moved into really quite senior organisations within their careers and that's given them the ability to step out and take this risk. Um, yes, it's a financial risk, but it's also a personal, professional, reputational risk. So I think it's, you know, I'm always wanting to acknowledge that it is more difficult for some people than it is for others. In terms of hustle, you know, that I'm not a hustler. I'm not a salesperson. I just believe in relationships and I believe in career karma. 
for me, relationships are genuine and I'm constantly reaching out to people just to understand their views on the future of work and their views around how they flex their organisations. What are some of the pain points with traditional consulting agencies at the moment? And when they do have an extra bit of work that their team can't quite take on, where do they turn to? I'm, you know, I just try to put the generosity out there. Um, Whenever people reach out to me to kind of pick my brain, I'm always willing to give that back. Um, So for me, it's about developing relationships and that's not only in the hope that, you know, one day there might be an opportunity to work together, but also just to put that goodwill out there and keep learning from your customers. So that's really important for me. Because, yeah, you, you like you said, you've got all these people with incredible experience um, and that you'd be, you'd be learning from them as well and you get so much out of just being part of their network. Uh, like you said, career karma, which is one of my favourite new phrases. I also love flex your organisation. <laughs> you're just dropping everything. You're like, all, all your, you've thought so much about this. Now, I, I think one of the questions we did want to kind of ask was about around how is working different to other talent platforms because somebody kind of might ask, okay, so you know what, there are part-time jobs or there are freelance, you know, there's there's freelancer websites and there's like Airtasker and there's, there's this and that. Mm. What is it that Workling does that is different? Mm. That is a great question. There is an absolute chasm in between the way that businesses are operating today, particularly larger businesses and some of those global um, talent platforms or freelance platforms like your Fivers and your Airtaskers. Businesses just do not have the the trust and the faith in those platforms to tap into them for strategic type work. Um, what I've actually found, particularly within Australia, which is where we're still focused today, is our actual competitors are consulting agencies. They're not other platforms and they're not even yet the traditional workforce. And I think that will change over time. Um, but right now, when organisations are needing to augment and bring in additional resources to deliver on projects or deliver on pieces of work, they are. I have not met one person, and I've interviewed hundreds and hundreds of senior leaders who are jumping on to another talent platform to find on-demand talent. So it's a it's a it's an area that is evolving but it's quite low maturity right now i think the difference that workling bring is yes it's tech enabled but we still have a really strong relationship base our talent is all peer recommended one of the early insights we got from our customer research was that when leaders do want to bring in a, a freelancer they'll go to their network um, and try to find the person there. If they can't find the capability that they need there, they'll ask for referrals and recommendations from those that they trust. So that, And they will blindly follow those recommendations. So there's this belief that top talent knows top talent. So with how we've built our Workling community, I literally started with the awesome freelancers and on-demand talent that I knew. And I asked them, who have you worked with before? Who would you love to work with again? And who would you put your professional name to? Tell me who those people are and connect me with them. And we've really grown our community through those referrals and recommendations. Now, 
the risk of that approach is it can come with a lack of diversity because you start getting a lot of like type people. Um, and we've had some really intentional focus and strategies around that and have built a beautifully diverse community. And not only is that community focused on accessing gigs, of course, they're here to, uh, to access new and exciting opportunities that play to their strengths. But the other point of difference with Workling is we want to reimagine what that sense of team and community look like for people who work on demand. The number one thing that we hear from people who are corporate escapees, the only thing they miss being a part of an organisation is being part of a team. So how can we start to reimagine that for this new and growing segment of the workforce? So yes, we're going to connect you with awesome gigs, but we're more than that. We don't want to be a transactional platform. We want to be a community. And what can we achieve together that is so much more than what we could achieve alone. So we're trying a whole lot of things on the community side that can help foster peer learning, connectivity, inclusion and belonging to just be more than that transactional platform. So do you think, because given diversity and inclusion is such a big part of the corporate world these days and you have spent a lot of time working for corporates, did those experiences that you had in people and culture, did they help shape what you were doing when you initially did the groundwork to set Workling up? Yeah, absolutely. I think everything from my background in terms of organisation design and talent and diversity and inclusion have all kind of informed what we're building here. And I think beyond just what the future of work can look like, there's some societal problems that we can solve through our workling mission as well. And we don't always necessarily lead with those, but that's the broader impact we want to have. One of those is around well-being. So we design our organisations right now with a static number of people. So you might have five people within your comms team. Well, there's not exactly the perfect amount of work for five people every day of the year. We know there are peaks and troughs. What happens in those peaks is people burn out. So how can we flex our team so we're not overworking people? So there's a part of what we're doing here that it's not the whole solution, but it's a part of the solution to reduce burnout and work-related mental health issues and make more well organisations. The other piece, the other broader, I guess, societal piece is workforce participation. We've got a number of worklings who um, all kind of joined in a bit of a, a cluster towards the start of the year who have children who are starting primary school and have additional needs. And each of these individuals said, you know, my kids just have to cut. Like, I love my career. I find it so rewarding. But for the next couple of years, I need to only work school hours. Uh, and the jobs that I've, I have had and have had in the past are just not open to that. So what I'm going to do is turn my little side hustle freelance business into my new career path. Um, so I think there's a real workforce participation impact here, particularly for, for women um, and women with school-aged children, but of course for both genders, that traditional 
ways of working have never solved. I've, you know, attempted to progress my career through part-time work. It's bloody hard. Um, So it's kind of another reason why people are choosing to work in this different way. As I said before, there's no, I think there's continued opportunity to look at how we increase diversity into this gig and freelance-based work because, as I said, it is a, a kind of a, privileged starting point because people have the benefit of a 20-year career behind them before they step out into this type of work. But I think as we see future generations enter the workforce and they don't want to stick it out in an organisation for 20 years before they get to this you know, portfolio career, we'll start to see more diversity in the types of people who are stepping into this type of work. Now, you talked about parenting and Oh, that's a that, it's a huge area. I think also the pandemic showed for a lot of people that um, look there there was there some great things about working from home and with the kids around and being able to make more time for them. There's also some terrible things about it too. But you, you're a mum yourself. How has that changed how you look at work and even just what you want out of life and and that kind of uh, both life and work? Yeah, one of the one of the actual key drivers for me when I left um, in-house work and started doing freelance-based work was my discomfort that sat with me every time I was in the office in the city. I live in Melbourne, but I'm about 45 minutes out of the city. Um, My husband was working in the city full-time. I was in there three or four days a week. And on those days, I just felt so uncomfortable because if one of my children broke their arm or hurt themselves at childcare, you know, it was going to take me 45 minutes to get to them. So that was one of the driving forces for me to go, oh, this, this way of working actually just isn't sitting well for me. I actually, that my last in-house role that I had, I actually left, I think I was six months pregnant at the time. Like there was just a values um, misalignment and just a, a recognition that the type of work wasn't wasn't right for me. I when we we surveyed our community recently around what their drivers were for working on demand, and I probably expected a more a stronger response around family um, and flexibility around family, and that certainly did come through strongly. But there was also quite a flavour around just purpose and your own personal well being and. Um, living your best life. So I think it totally is a driver because we we all know that the school system and the work system just do not work together. My son has his hundred days of uh, prep hundredth day of prep tomorrow. And I said to my husband this morning, how many work there's probably been what are we seven day seven months into year like 140, 150 work days this year. And my son is just doing his hundredth day of prep. So there's 50, 40 or 50 work days that just, it, the, the maths doesn't quite add up. So the school system and the work system just doesn't work. So for me personally, I mean, I literally started working as the pandemic started, which probably isn't, you know, perfect timing to start a, a business looking at contingent labor when that's the first thing to be paused in these tough times. But, you know, it meant that through those lockdown periods, and I'm in Melbourne, so I spent a lot of time in lockdown, there was very little else to do. So it's like, 
kids or work, kids work, kids work, kids work. Um, and it became really all consuming. So this year I've still haven't got it right, but trying to be a lot more intentional around work time, me time, exercise time, family time, because, you know, that's a thing with starting your own business. Like there's just, there's a never ending list of opportunities and you're so passionate about it. So trying to kind of carve out time for other aspects of your life because it can so easily be absorbed. How much do you think that purpose and wellness piece plays into people's decisions to jump into the gig economy? And then how do you think that is going to continue to shape the future of work? Yeah, look, all of the research around, you know, what is driving people is, you know, this increased focus on being purpose-led. And like I said, our our community are wanting to play to their strengths. They just want to come in and do a great job. Every now and then I'll I'll reach out to one of our worklings and chat to them about a gig opportunity. And it's not uncommon to hear, oh yeah, I could definitely do that. But I tell you who would even do a better job? You should chat to blah blah. Blah blah would do an amazing job. There's this kind of generosity and people only want to do this work that absolutely plays to their strengths and that they love and fills their buckets. And that's just going to become more and more common as you know the future of work unfolds. My view of the future of work is there's still going to be this more traditional structure to an organisation where you'll hold those core capabilities needed for the workforce, but then you'll have these benches of talent that you bring in and out as needed. So there's still going to be jobs for those who want jobs, but There's going to be a tipping point where we start to realise there are more and more people wanting to work in this different way and we need some organisational structures and systems to be able to tap into them. There's a real power shift that I think we've seen more broadly over the the last couple of years, particularly in this really talent-scarce market. The power has flipped to being with the talent who are asking for for more money, jumping ship to to look for their dream job. But how that plays out in this freelance or on-demand talent side is that they can actually say no to work. The other thing I'll just mention is, you know, you spoke about, you used the phrase gig economy there. And, you know, you've probably heard me using lots of different phrases, whether it's on-demand talent or independent consultants or corporate SKPs. And a part of that is because I don't think we've really landed on what we want to call these people. The problem when we talk about the gig economy is we bucket a whole host of things in there. We're talking about your delivery. Uber Uber drivers and your delivery. And there's a whole host of really like vulnerabilities that happen within that side of the gig economy that don't exist when you're looking at someone coming in and running an executive workshop or, you know, doing your marketing strategy for the next couple of years. So there's really these two ends of the gig economy. And I think the conversation that happens around the, you know, driver delivery end is so important, but we also need to recognize that they're two just very different groups within that mix. Um, So it takes, you know, and that's a part of why it's quite difficult to look at some of the reporting and the trends around the gig economy because there's all get the the two ends get a little bit mixed up. Um, 
But yeah, so I think, you know, it'd be great to see a more nuanced conversation around the gig economy because they're just, yeah, two very different ends of the spectrum. I think that's a really important point to make because there are so many different kinds of ways to work now, which you've spoken to us about on this podcast. I think the thing that I love about this new way of working is it's not about casualizing the workforce. These are people who have decided they don't want to work in the traditional model. So it's not something that's being inflicted on them. It's an active choice that they're making in they're redesigning their life and their work. Um, So it's a better way of working for the talent. And also it opens up this whole new world of talent and way of working for organisations. You know, work isn't going to become more static. There isn't going to be less change in the future. We are going to have to look at creating these more nimble organisations and tap into different types of talent to, to help that happen. Michelle Fotheringham, thank you so much for sharing your first act. Now, if you want to hear more. Oh, yes, you're most welcome. Now, if you want to hear more about Workling, head to workling.com. And that's Workling with an E, not an O. And to find out more about the business, just put that into Google and you'll get all the latest. And then join us next week for another fantastic first act conversation thank you